Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm Woe. So the question that's been raging lately on the uh, Lutheran Twitter sphere um, has been, can girls teach? Uh, it's an interesting question because it's, it's not a Lutheran question. It's one that's been really facing the whole church for, depending on how far back you go, centuries. Um, but certainly in the last 50 years, can girls teach has been in the forefront of what's happening in our Christian churches. And the reason we're going to talk about it today is that, in part, that's not actually the right form of the question. The right form of the question is, may girls teach? Uh, But before we can answer that, we have to answer a few predicate questions to define our terms. Uh, The first is, what is a girl? What is a woman? Where did they come from? What are they for? And then once we understand that, we can address the question, what is teaching? So, uh, Corey, what is a girl? Well, a girl is defined, in part, you could define a girl as in contrast to a man. And what a girl is, is a helpmeet. Woman is made for man, not man for woman, as Scripture very clearly states. And so, woman is made in Genesis 1. We have, of course, we have the uh, more elaborate detail later on in Genesis, but we have in Genesis one twenty-seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And of course, we'll get to some of the, the grammar and such there a little bit later, but the whole purpose of a girl is to help her husband. Before she has a husband, it's to help her family. But... That is the the purpose of a girl. It is not to be an equal or a competitor to man, which is sort of what we've allowed girls to become today. So we have in Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the question, of course, arises here. Is woman, is the female maid, in the image of God. And we have other places in Scripture that will shed light on this, because man is the glory of God. Man is made in the image of God. Woman is the glory of man. So there's a difference there. Is woman ultimately made in the image of God? Yes, in a transitive sense, because she's the image and glory of man who is the image and glory of God. And we have that here in Genesis 1.27, because if you actually look at Genesis 127, what is said there? God created man in his own image. And that is, of course, masculine, singular, man. In the image of God, he created him. And again, masculine, singular. And then, and the ESV actually does a good job here because there's a semicolon after him. And then male and female, he created them. Related matter, not the exact same thing. There is a distinction, even here, in the very beginning, between man and woman and the creation of man and woman. So what is woman made to do? She is made to be a helpmeet. She is made to help her husband. And there's actually some useful language from Luther here in his, actually, volume one in the American edition, because the first eight volumes are 
Luther's commentary on Genesis. So for Luther's commentary here for Genesis 127, I'll skip the, uh, the first couple paragraphs here. They're just about similitude and image and comment on the sentences. But male and female, he created them. And this is a quote from Luther. In order not to give the impression that he was excluding the woman from all the glory of the future life, Moses includes each of the two sexes, for the woman appears to be a somewhat different being from the man, having different members and a much weaker nature, although Eve was a most extraordinary creature, similar to Adam so far as the image of God is concerned, that is, in justice, wisdom, and happiness, she was nevertheless a woman. For as the sun is more excellent than the moon, although the moon too is a very excellent body, so the woman, although she was a most beautiful work of God, nevertheless was not the equal of the male in glory and prestige. And so Luther properly recognizes that even in the garden, before the fall, in the state of perfection, woman is not equal to man. Men and women are different. The girl was made for the man, not vice versa. I think you mentioned earlier the, the transitive property, and I'm sure there are people listening who think that we are denying that women are made in the image of God. And that's not the point, but it's a, it's a subtle distinction that relies on the sort of reason that really isn't taught anymore, that people don't understand, don't think in those terms. So when you say similar to and you say transitive property, what are you actually saying? What is the A to B and B to C doing in this, this scenario? The point that we are attempting to make is that if you say that two things are entirely equal, of course, well, that gets into the laws of logic then, because two things that can't be distinguished are, of course, the same thing. But if man is made in the image of God, to be made in the image of God means something. It does not mean to be equal to God. It does not mean to be identical to God, because, of course, it cannot mean that, because we are finite, God is infinite. And so... If we are created in the image of God, we are a lesser creature than God. Woman is made in the image of man. Woman is a lesser creature than man, still made in the image of God, still partakes of, if she is Christian, salvation and the eternal life, the, the good version of the eternal life. You do get the other one if you're not a Christian. But she is a lesser creature, but still made in the image of God. There's that difference there, and it's important to note that difference. What is an what is an image? You know, in the, in the internet age, we just think of JPEGs. And f <laughs> frankly, that's, that's about as that's far true. as pe people can take it. But when th theologians talk about image, what does that mean? Well, we could actually go to the the Greek here, so we can uh, perhaps address some potential pastoral detractors. Because what does it actually say in the Greek? Icona. It's an icon or an idol. Man is meant to image or to represent God in creation. So man is the pinnacle of creation. Man is at the top of the hierarchy. Man represents God to creation. And that is what man is supposed to do. And we still have this to some degree today. Yes, it is to some degree lost and corrupted because of the fall. But... If you have a dog, particularly if you select it well and have a good breed, your dog is going to look to you 
after a fashion as if you were God, because your dog looks to you for everything good in his life. He looks to you for food, for shelter, for warmth, for care, affection. Your dog looks to you as the representative of God in creation. So your dog is not necessarily looking exactly through you to God, but after a fashion, that is what's happening. And that is how woman properly interfaces and interacts with God, because the wife is not the head. The husband is the head. And so the body interacts with the head, the head interacts with God. That's how things are supposed to work. There's a natural hierarchy there. There's um, a footnote reference that is also relevant from the same work in Luther. It references Luther's later comments on marriage. And it's important to, to bring this up as well, because I'm sure we'll discuss marriage a little more shortly. But what appears in the Latin text, Luther was reading the Vulgate, as likened to himself is in Hebrew, which should be about him. With this expression, the text also makes a difference between the human female and the females of all the remaining animals, which are not always about their mates. The woman was so created that she should everywhere and always be about her husband. Thus, imperial law also calls the life of married people an inseparable relationship. The female of the brutes has a desire for the male only once in a whole year. But after she has become pregnant, she returns to her home and takes care of herself. For her young born another time, she has no concern, and she does not always live with her mate. But among men, the nature of marriage is different. There the wife so binds herself to a man that she will be about him and will live together with him as one flesh. And so there is this difference between man and the wild creatures. Now, perhaps the wild creatures were somewhat different before the fall, but his point about woman is very important to note. What does it say in Scripture about the wife. She is to obey her husband in everything as she would obey the Lord. That is an exceptionally high bar. And so woman is supposed to be about her husband, which makes perfect sense if you understand headship, because the head is in charge. The body is supposed to follow the head. Your foot isn't supposed to tell you, no, I don't feel like going for a walk today. That's not how things are supposed to work. We were talking about this privately recently that until the last really two generations, maybe, whenever a married woman was referenced by a third party, it was as Mrs. Robert Price. It was never by her first name. Sure, she didn't have her own distinct identity apart from her husband. And that's one of the things that feminism has sought in great earnestness for 100 years to cast down to ensure that every woman can be defined entirely apart from any man, whether it's her father or her husband or the absence of a husband. The essence of feminism is ultimately that girls are first-party members of everything and therefore must be granted all of the same privileges and ultimately the same authority that men have because we're all the same. And Christians hear those things that did not originate within Christianity. They hear them and they try to find in Scripture where they can justify them. And so you end up people making an argument about the Imago Dei that, well, yes, women were made in the image of God too, so of course they can do all these things. And 
that's why we're discussing this right up front, is that the headship that predates the fall, the headship that is the very essence of the created order, is not set of, it, it is, it's damaged by the fall. It is harmed in its unity by the fall, but is not set aside, and it's not set aside in redemption either. When we are sanctified by Christ, when we are a new creation as brothers in Christ, and Scripture refers to girls as brothers in Christ as well, for the sake of inheritance, which is something we may not get to today, but if you read the passages where Paul deals with inheritance, he refers to everyone as a son of God, whether they're male or female, because inheritance had to belong to the man. And so these these categories and these terms are not they're not cultural things that we have just sort of read about recently online and decided that we need to fight over about the Bible. This is how scripture talks about what God has done in creation since the beginning. And these attacks coming from outside the church are fundamental attacks on creation itself. And I think as Lutherans, we're not good at defending attacks against creation because Lutheranism was defined when the attack was against sanctification and justification. And we're not fighting the Pope anymore. We're fighting, we're fighting people who deny the first three books of the Bible. And that, that's part of this, this fight as well. Yeah, Satan doesn't sleep, and he's realized that he can attack us at something that is tangential and yet still very much connected to the fight that we had centuries ago. And when it comes to the the issue of the use of either the masculine or the feminine pronouns and such, there are those who will try to argue that, well, the masculine encompasses the feminine grammatically, and one... There's some irony there, because these will be the same people who like to say she and he. They'll even go so far as to list both and list the feminine first, just completely throwing grammar aside. But they are correct that the masculine can encompass the feminine, because as we've discussed previously in Latin, if there's a group of a thousand women and one man, you use the masculine, because that's just how it works. And that's how it works in most languages, typically. However... Scripture does have places where it says he or she, effectively, because they say man or woman. And so, Scripture is very clear when men and women are being addressed separately, or when they are being addressed collectively. And so, most of the Scripture is, in fact, written with a male audience in mind. It is written toward men. And that is, of course, only right, as we even recognize, of course, in the small catechism, as the head of the household should teach his household. Because that's how it works. The head is supposed to teach. It's funny you mentioned the the fact that we we look at those language features as quirks, as that's just the sexist, misogynistic past, when in reality, those ancient languages reflected headship. They reflected created order. They reflected a basic fundamental understanding of what we're trying to establish with this episode, which is that the presence of a man in a community, even if it's a one-to-many relationship with one man and lots of women, the man is in charge, period, by default. There cannot be an exception if you want to be godly. And we're up against a lot of people, including a lot of pastors, who just don't buy that. There are pastors who are very proud about the fact 
that they have girls teaching at synodical conferences, teaching theology to pastors. And they think it's the best thing ever. They're so delighted to be uh, so progressive and so forward-looking um, and, and, and such celebrators of the quote-unquote gospel, when in reality what they're doing is A, abdicating their own offices on the spot, and B, defiling and mocking God's created order. And they're doing it in, in a very public way, and they're doing it unrepentantly. And I, I pray that people will begin to take this issue more seriously, because it's not, it's not a small linguistic matter, and it's not about publishing books. It's about whether we submit to God, and if we as all Christians submit to God, then all girls will submit to men in all cases. There's not a case where a girl cannot submit to a man. There's a question of order, there's a question of hierarchy, and not every girl automatically submits to every man, but the fact remains, a man will always be in the lead and on top in the superior position. And as you mentioned, men are superior, and that's something that just sets the egalitarian mind on edge today, because the idea that superior and inferior must necessarily reflect the value of those involved, and it's simply not the case. If you have a general and you have a colonel, the general is his superior. That's literally what it's called. It doesn't necessarily mean he's a better soldier. He might be, he should be, but it means that he is in the superior position and his authority must be obeyed because of his position. And what God has revealed in scripture is that man is superior by virtue of the position that he holds in creation over all of it. And you mentioned earlier that, that man was over all of creation. That's, that's why all of creation fell. When, when Jesus died and, and redeemed creation, he didn't just pay for our personal sins. He paid for the disobedient tree that he cursed that didn't produce fruit. And he paid for the wind that he had to rebuke because it was blowing and trying to kill them. All of creation fell. And while we wouldn't care to categorize the disobedience of creation as sin per se, it is the result of the fall. It's the result of everything that was under Adam's dominion having lost that proper order. And you will see, as you mentioned, there's, there's a reflection of this thing where sometimes that order is still properly established, where your dog should obey you, and your dog should naturally obey you, but you must assert your superiority. And in dog training, one of the worst, really the worst mistake you can make is letting your dog run wild. If your dog is in charge, if your dog is calling the shots, he will think, well, there's a hierarchy and you're not on top, so I must be. And as soon as your dog realizes that, he's going to run wild and you will never get him back under control. And that reality does not only apply to animals, it applies to people too. Where there is an order and it is usurped, there's no way to get it properly restored without a lot of pain because everyone is like, well, hey, I was getting away with it. Why should I stop now? And we're at the tail end of a century or so of exactly that people just running entirely wild and doing as they please. And as you mentioned, egalitarianism, we have these priors, these presuppositions that we inherited from the Enlightenment, and they go completely unexamined. And so this, this presupposition, this egalitarian prior, this belief that all men are created equal, is just false. It is objectively, demonstrably false, and we all know it. 
because we have all been in a situation where someone was either significantly better or significantly worse at something than we were at the time. And so there are those who are significantly better at task A, those who are significantly better at task B. They're not equal with respect to those tasks at which they are better or worse. And the same thing is true of human attributes. There are those who are more intelligent. There are more, those who are more attractive. There are all sorts of differences. Man to man is not equal. Man to woman is certainly not equal. And so these fundamentally flawed priors that we have imported from the secular world, from objectively, aggressively godless world, are just corrupting the church because they go unexamined and even pastors have bought into them. And we see that, like you mentioned, when they have women stand up and speak at even worse teach, but just speaking at a pastor's conference. That is that enlightenment coming back to bite us because, well, we're truly progressive and we are including women and you're not being inclusive. You're not being progressive. And we can discuss whether progressive is even a good thing, but it's not, is the short version. What you are doing is undermining what God built. You are undermining his order. You are being faithless if you are a pastor to your office. Absolutely. And actually, I, I almost skipped over something that is worth mentioning with regard to Genesis 127, because we miss it in the English. And this is one of those cases where it actually surprisingly, Hebrew helps a little bit <laughs> because it's even more blatant what is being said in Genesis 127 in the Hebrew, because we have, of course, anthropon in the Greek. But what word is that translating from the Hebrew? Adam. The word for man is Adam. So you have, he made the man, Adam, in his image. It's, there's no missing what is being said there. Adam is the one who is made in the truest, strictest, and highest sense in the image of God. And specifically Adam, because all of us who followed after him are fallen. Until, of course, we get to the new Adam. Absolutely. You had mentioned, or referred back to talking about the pastors' conferences and, and girls teaching pastors. Um you think it's time to move on to defining what teaching is? Uh, first, I just want to go over the fall. Okay. Because absolutely. I want to point out something vitally important about women in the fall. And so, of course, in the, in the fall, God's cursing of creation, you have first the serpent, who is essentially just dismissed. There's, there's no discussion here. The serpent is just cursed because, of course, it's Satan. But... To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. But of course, as has been mentioned a number of times by a number of commentators, that your desire shall be for your husband is actually better rendered into the English as your desire shall be against your husband. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. And so how is woman cursed? Woman is cursed in the same, not the same exact way, but in the same sense as man is cursed. Man is cursed with regard to the soil, of course. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. 
because the curse falls on the core of the duties, what that person is. And so man is cursed with regard to his work, because work isn't supposed to be labor and toil. Work was something God made for us to do. It's one of the things we are supposed to do. But it was not suffering before the fall. And so woman is cursed in two ways. Really one way, two aspects of it. She is recursed with regard to womanhood, motherhood, and of course being a wife, all tied together. She is cursed in regard to being a mother by having childbearing be painful. It is now a process that will come at a cost. That was not the case before the fall. And so that strikes at the core of what woman is supposed to be, which is wife and mother. And so the desire against your husband strikes at that other aspect, the central aspect of being a wife, because first wife, then mother. And so woman after the fall desires to rule. She desires to usurp the office that rightly belongs to her husband. She desires to become head. And that is the case even for women who are attempting to live as they ought and to behave as they ought. Those women will struggle against that sinful nature in themselves and will try to suppress the desire to usurp the office of their husbands, to actually submit to their husbands as they are commanded to do, and as they would have been able to do without effort prior to the fall. But today, of course, it requires effort on the part of both the woman and the man. And man is head, of course, has the higher duty. He has to keep the women in his life under control. That is part of what it means to be the head. That is part of what it means to be a man. As you mentioned there, I, I just want to reiterate this because it's so important. Man's work was cursed. His work is the ground. Woman's work is cursed. Her work is childbearing and obviously child rearing, raising children. Her work isn't cursed in the field because she shouldn't properly be in the field. The man should she be is the providing. Field. Yes, <laughs> there's that too. Um, it's just that's what it, there's two types of working the field that man does. Woman yep. is a field. Indeed, and that's in uh, to get back to what I said about feminism. It exists to upend all of this, all of it. First wave, second wave. There's there's no version of the pro-female machinations in the secular or religious realm that can be sanctified. You cannot take scripture and take 19th and 20th century values and somehow legitimize them. And that's something we'll get into in a little bit, but there's the genealogy of these ideas that we need to take seriously because people want to just grab whatever from the world which is something that we were actually accused of tonight by one of the pastors on Twitter, of just sort of borrowing cultural things and importing them into Christianity. Nothing could be further from the truth. All we're doing is pointing to Scripture. We're having to point to Scripture about the issue of girls teaching and girls writing books and doing this other work that rightly belongs to men exclusively, because, as you said, even well-meaning, well-intentioned, otherwise faithful Christian men and women have been so secularized that they don't know they're being secular. They don't know that they're being worldly when they white knight for girls who are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And when a man speaks up and says, hey, that's not your job, 
there's a dog pile against the man who's pointing to scripture in defense of a girl who is usurping her father, her son, her husband, and God himself. And it, it just comes back to we live at the tail end of generations of faithlessness, and that is a very hard thing to undo because you have these presuppositions and these priors and indoctrination, it's not even right to call it education, over a course of decades, almost a century, generations where they have just wholesale adopted the secular culture. And that comes out everywhere. Just look at the, you could look at the timeline and see what happens. Well, we have the 19th Amendment. Now women are able to exercise political power, which of course is an exercise of headship. And we can discuss whether it's right for all men to exercise that even. Of course it's not, but it is absolutely wrong for women to exercise it. And what does the church do in response? Well, now women can vote in our congregations. It follows the culture. It doesn't follow scripture. It doesn't listen because we know what the church is. The church is a harlot. The church rebels against Christ in the same way Eve rebels against Adam, in the same way woman rebels against man. And Christ has to bring the church back to himself. Man has to bring woman back to himself. It is that constant fight against that fallen nature until things are perfected in the new creation. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the problems that we struggle with is that so many pastors and others want to define these battles in terms of the quote-unquote culture war as though there's somehow this political sphere that exists sort of in the in the periphery or in the distance, and people are importing political things into the church and into the Christian life, and it sometimes it's causing harm and sometimes it's doing good. And what happens is when everyone has a tendency to think, well, I'm a Christian and I'm not sorry for anything I'm doing right now, therefore everything I'm doing right now and everything I believe must be Christian, because I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible. So it's not possible for me to be disobeying God in an idolatrous and wicked way, because I love God. And that is the exact opposite of what Christians should be thinking. And frankly, it's what we're accused of. We're accused of ignoring what Scripture says and doing what we want. And I personally find that laughable, because if I were to invent a religion, it would absolutely not be Christianity. If I wanted to make up my own rules, there would be a lot more of some things and a lot less of others. It would not look like what we do. This is not self-serving. When I open scripture to any page, I see myself and my own personal sins condemned. And so it's no surprise to me when I examine my priors after decades of believing, for example, things like libertarianism were fine. I never examined those priors. They were sold to me by Christians. There are Christians who said, oh yeah, this is great, this is fine, it's, it's political, it's totally consistent with God's Word, it's in this separate sphere, so have fun, it's better than communism. Like, well, I don't like communism, so libertarianism must be fine. <laughs> and, and so when, 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 we, when we escape from examining our priors rigorously as they relate to Scripture, you can justify anything. And the problem is that what we're facing now is that proof texting is a, a terrible thing. And it's something that's easy to do, and it's hard to get away from. But 
and it's why I mentioned the genealogy of ideas earlier. And also we, we both talked about the timeline of these things. There's a timeline of what women have done in the church, what women have done in the home, what women have done in the workplace. In every century where Christianity exists, you will see roles of a certain nature. Like I said at the outset, Mrs. Robert Price was married to Mr. Robert Price, or Dr. Robert Price. Her identity was as her husband's wife, first and foremost. To him, he didn't call her Mrs. Robert Price because she belonged to him. He called her in a much more personal way. But strangers or those who were not intimately familiar as they were should not do that. And that was the norm until our grandparents, basically. And what's happening everywhere, now this, is, this isn't a Lutheran problem, this is a societal problem. And it's the reason that the quote-unquote based and trad crowd constantly gets dragged by these pastors, is that we're skipping right over all the crap that they've been selling us and their grandparents have been selling us, and we're looking back to prior centuries. And I think that Lutherans are particularly vulnerable to rejecting appeals to history because Rome did it to us. When Luther popped up and was like, hey, I'm reading the Bible and I'm not finding this stuff you're teaching, I think we're doing it wrong. Their argument was, well, we've been doing this for forever. The church has always believed this and so you're wrong. And he said, but scripture says otherwise. And then as others mentioned, he and, you know, he and the other Lutherans basically invented patristics to demonstrate that no, actually, many in the church did believe what we believe in the 16th century and today. And it was, in fact, Rome who had departed from tradition. So tradition appeals are not per se invalid, but they are they can either be good or bad. They always need to be examined in terms of their priors. And the priors in Latin and Greek and these other languages were that women had headship under men. The, the woman was the body, the man was the head. And so that's reflected even in the most basic linguistic elements. It's reflected in, in job roles of which the woman existed in the home to be a helpmeet to her husband in his household for his, his vocation, whatever it was. She was to act in service to that in everything that she did. Um, a woman is given by the father to the husband to be married. And that is a transfer of title that no one wants to deal with today. But even the, even the forms of the, of the ceremony and the ways that we describe things, at least until very recently, reflected the past that the fact that the headship went from the father to the husband, and that is godly and that is proper. And wherever you have girls acting in a way that is contrary to the dominion of either a husband or a father, Whatever they do after that is inherently illegitimate because they're in rebellion. They're in open rebellion by virtue of their life. And that's also the norm today. And you know, we see pastors worrying about, well, where do I send my girl to college? <laughs> and we beg them, please, <laughs> please don't. Don't send them to college. Your daughter will become a whore in college, even if she goes to a Lutheran college. And it was like, oh, oh no, well, you know, the Christian colleges are fine. It's, the, it's, the, it's those pagans. Like, no, it isn't. It is rebellion for her to leave your household without being sent to a man's house to be his husband. And because we've spent so many decades and now centuries in engaging in some of these activities that 
we think that since we're Christian, it must be fine, when in fact, we're Christian, we've been told better when the world hasn't. And not only are we disobeying God, but we are setting the worst example for others. And so when the based and trad crowd looks at what our own churches are teaching today, and they see it's inconsistent with Scripture and with the history of the Christian church, they just look elsewhere, because we don't look Christian to them. And they're not wrong. That's absolutely true. And we have this serious problem where we actually have pagans who are being more faithful in some ways than Christians. Of course, they're wrong when it comes to the core theological questions. They're wrong, obviously, on justification and soteriology. They don't understand those things. But when it comes to ontology, when it comes to creation, when it comes to the nature of God, there are a lot of pagans who understand it a lot better than most Christians, including many pastors. And that is not what we need to have happening. We cannot permit that because, as you mentioned, what does that do? It drives all the young men out of the church. And if you drive all the young men out of the church, you have killed the church. The church cannot exist with just women. That's not a church. The church has to have men, not least of all because only men can be pastors, but also because men as head have to be the ones in charge, have to be the ones who are teaching. And some men are simply resorting to permitting women to do these things because those men are lazy. They are derelict in their duty. They don't want to have to do the things they are supposed to do, so they figure, well, women are good enough at it. Or even if you find a woman who is better at it, it is still the man's duty to do the task if it falls within the things assigned to man. But those men don't want to do it because it's so much easier if you just let women do it. And you don't have to fight with them then. Woman is naturally rebellious. You are going to have to train a woman. You're going to have to train a wife. You are going to have to deal with this constant desire she has because she is a fallen creature and the curse that she has is rebellion against rightful authority. You have to deal with that. And most men, today at least, don't want to have to deal with it. And you don't have to deal with it if you just let her do whatever she wants. But if you let her do whatever she wants, she will tear down everything. She will tear down society and the church. And we see that happening. And she will do that even, even when she is well-meaning. Because the very act yes, itself yes. is usurpation. It has nothing to do with good intentions. It has nothing to do with how well she knows the catechism or loves Jesus. If she's doing these things, she is acting in a, an evil way, per se. And that must be stopped, per se. And that is one thing that so many pastors and others do not understand, or at least refuse to accept. You can do something that for... All appearances is a great thing. It is a good thing. But because of who you are, because of the actor, because of the nature, the status of the actor, the act itself is evil. And pastors should understand that, as should every Christian, particularly Lutherans, because our doctrine on this is exactly correct, is perfectly sound. If you do good works and you are not a Christian, they are sin. If you go out and feed the homeless, you provide them with shelter, you clothe them, you visit people in prison, you do all of these wonderful things, but you aren't a Christian, they're filthy rags, it's sin. None of it is good. If you are a Christian, the sin that taints those things is removed, is not counted against you because you were in Christ. Again, headship. 
and because you are in Christ, your good works are good. And so it is the status of the individual that matters, and so woman cannot exercise headship, no matter how well she may do it. You can have someone who is extremely good at the task and is still prohibited from engaging in that task. And we just look at it because we, at least in the U.S., we're largely coming at it with this capitalist mindset of, well, we should just pick the person who is best at the job, and that person should do it. And that's just not how it works, because there are certain people who should or should not do the job. And so, for instance, you should not have female soldiers. Is there possibly a woman who is a better soldier than a particular man? Yes, that could happen. Not often. Most women are terrible soldiers compared to men, but you could conceivably find one who is better. But it would still be sin for her to be a soldier. It would still be sin to permit it, because that is a task that is restricted to men. Women should not be engaged in it. And so we have to understand ontology, the nature of things, and of course, duty. Absolutely. So let's talk about teaching. That's that's why we're here today. Um, teaching is it gets to the heart of the Lutheran conception of vocation. Uh, Lutherans have this correct doctrine that of a vocation. Uh, the the root their word is the same as vocal. Uh, means a calling. Uh, in this case, a calling from God. It means that God both created you and then called you to a purpose. So there are vocations like father and husband. Uh, being a pastor is a vocation. Being a mother is a vocation. When God calls you into a vocation, there are certain duties that go along with it. And you are to fulfill those duties, not because it's the job, but because it is your duty to God. You have been entrusted with the care of whatever that duty is, and his obedience to God for a man or a woman to faithfully execute those duties in his or her vocation. So, as we mentioned at the, in the part about Genesis, there are vocations that rightly, strictly, can only belong to men. That which is work, that which is outside the household, you will find that those both in Scripture and elsewhere, rightly belong to men, and a girl will not be called to them by God. She may be thrust into them by evil circumstance, or she may be usurping in her actions, but if she ends up wearing one of those hats, it's because she and others have disobeyed God. And so the question that, that arose on Twitter in the last few weeks and, and elsewhere is, is it teaching to write a book? Is it teaching for a girl to write a book? Is it pastoral teaching for a girl to write a theological book? So the first thing we need to talk about is whether teaching is inherently done with authority. And this is where the Lutheran doctrine of vocation completely falls apart. I'm going to say some things here that will probably make a lot of Lutherans very angry because they'll be uncomfortable with the idea that maybe the way we talk about things can lead to error. But that's exactly what's going on here, and you've, we've seen it left and right from especially pastors discussing the intersection of the passage in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 regarding the proper role of women 
in the church. I have uh, the first Timothy 2 section pulled up here, so may as well read it, so at least we remind people of what it says. Hopefully, most of our audience will be familiar with it, but nevertheless. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith. There no, that's just, I was going to point out, there are a lot of things in there that need to be addressed because there are so many places that modern Christians and unfortunately many pastors go off the rails. One in particular I'll address before we move on to the next part of this. Nowhere in there does it say this is restricted to the church. Nothing in there says it's restricted to the church. In fact, what does it say? I desire then that in every place, it doesn't say in every church, just in the church, in houses of worship, in every Christian home. No, it says every place. These are instructions for life, and the appeal is to the order of creation, to the nature of men and women. It is not simply a set of rules for how we conduct things in the church. This is a statement about the reality of the world in which we live, the reality of man and woman, and just how things should be conducted if we are to be Christians in our lives and not just for an hour on Sunday. Absolutely. If, if you were to, <clears throat> to look at that list of things that God commands through Paul's writing and limit it to one hour during the divine service on Sunday, you would create hell on earth. If, if we're going to be given a world where all these things are permissible for everyone, except when they're in church, you have destroyed civilization. And frankly, we're not far from it. When you, when you go through that list of things, as you said, they're all happening. They're happening outside of church, and then, of course, they're being brought into church, because when Christians fail to listen to God, when Christians are ashamed of what God has said, and they backpedal, and they circumscribe, and they narrow down God's law until it's, there's so little of it left that pretty much anyone can buy into it. Satan has won. And that is what we are battling today. And the reason that I said that the Lutheran doctrine of vocation falls apart is for that very reason. Is it because Tim is, Timothy is a pastoral epistle, and around that, Paul is describing things within the church Christians read that and say, well, this can only apply to the church because I don't want to deal with the implications of it not applying to the church. If it, if it applies to the grocery store, if it applies to the school, if it applies to the government, then we're in trouble. I'm in trouble because I am participating in sin, and I know that I am free from sin. That's, that's kind of where we are, and it's, it's simply false. Um, it's interesting to note that grammatically, 
the Holy Spirit says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not a woman permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. So teaching is separate from exercising authority because there are kinds of exercising authority that are not teaching. But it is also connected in the same sentence because teaching is a form of the exercise of authority. And that's been one of the roots of the argument online that, that I want to address now. When a Lutheran thinks about authority, we think about it in terms of vocation. So we think father, we think husband, we think teacher in a classroom, or a pastor over his flock, or a prince over his dominion. And those are all vocations where God has called a particular person, a particular man, to a place, has given him a domain, has given him people under his care, and rebellion against that authority is sin all by itself. If you disobey your father and he is not doing something that is, if, assuming that he is not directly contravening God, your disobedience to your father is disobedience to God because of his authority as your father. So when Lutherans think about vocation, they think that, well, all authority stems from and flows from vocation. And that's simply not true, because there are two kinds of authority. And this is something that we all understand naturally. And I'll give you the example of this very podcast. As Corey and I are speaking to you, we are teaching. We are exercising authority. How so? Because I have the microphone and you have the speakers. I am actively speaking and you are passively listening. I am giving and you are receiving. That is inherently authority, per se, just by virtually virtue of the structure of the thing. Now, that is not to suggest that if you disagree with me, you're you're sinning, you're transgressing against God, because this is the type of authority where, although it is inherent in the act, it does not compel submission, except through the veracity of its claims. So if I sit here and talk, and I cite scripture, and you agree with what I say about scripture, you're doing that because the Holy Spirit acting in you hears the voice of God in the way I'm framing something. Not that I'm a prophet, not that I'm speaking as God, but that I'm saying what God says, and God within you hears it and says, yes, I believe that. That's between you and God. If you agree with that, you're not submitting to me, you're submitting to God. And if you disagree with it, if I'm wrong, then you're just disagreeing with me. If I'm right, you're disagreeing with me and God, but your only sin would be against God, because the authority of my speech does not extend to condemnation of someone who doesn't like it. Um, there, and there are lots of examples of this in the world. You know, if you go to a lecture, the, whoever the lecturer is, is standing. He's typically standing behind a podium. It's raised. You are seated. You are lower than him. Every physical element of the process of teaching reinforces the authority of the speaker and the submission of the listener. Now, in the case of teaching, there are also actually two different kinds of teaching. I had mentioned that teacher is a vocation. It is a vocation in the realm where a student goes to a classroom, the teacher takes attendance. In that case, the student has been assigned to that teacher. 
by the school system, by the parents, whatever. There is a one-to-many relationship of the teacher to the students, but there is a relationship of authority and accountability because the teacher has a responsibility for the performance of the students. And that is unlike a lecture, that is unlike a podcast, and that is unlike a book where there is also a one-to-many relationship, but the many are typically anonymous. The many, there's no accountability from the one to God to make sure that the many hew to whatever has been said. So the authority is very limited, but nevertheless, it is authority. For a man to stand up and pronounce something is, is done as an act of authority. Now, it may be usurpation depending on vocation. There may be cases where, you know, for example, in the middle of a church service where the pastor is speaking and he's preaching, if some man stands up in the middle of the service and starts arguing with him, he's the, the man is acting with authority, but it's evil. It, it's a bad type of, of usurpation because he's usurping that which the pastor is rightly doing even if the pastor's wrong, I mean, there'd be, there are very limited circumstances where it would ever be permissible to do that. I wouldn't say that it should never be done, but it should be so, struck stored, so extraordinary that you should probably never hear about it. One would hope. Basically, it would have to be outright heresy. Yeah. And, you know, that, that does occur, but, you know, God willing, it won't happen in our churches, at least for a while. So the, the reason for, for pointing out that there are two different kinds of authority and teaching is to get to the heart of what has been discussed online about girls writing books and girls writing theology books, because that's exactly what's happening in the Missouri Synod today and has been going on for quite some time. Concordia Publishing House, CPH, is an arm of the Missouri Synod. It is a wholly captive business that belongs to the corporation of the LCMS. It's a business entity, and this is a game that gets played whenever these questions come up. On one hand, everything that CPH publishes must go through doctrinal review, because CPH is the church for the purposes of publishing things that should be sound doctrine. But when men stand up and say, hey, but we have girls teaching, suddenly the church says, hey, you know, it's just a publishing, like, it's like print on demand, you know, they... They can say what they say, and it's not the church saying it, and you just need to settle down and quit hating women, um, which is not what anyone has said at any point. What has been said is that, there, again, there, there are several tiers of this question. Is the publishing house that belongs to a church, church teaching? Now, the Missouri Synod plays lots of games I don't even want to get into because I just find them disgusting, but the answer is yes or no, depending on how you want to interpret it. It's all weaseling. The more basic question, which is what we want to talk about, is whether publishing a book, period, is teaching. And again, First Timothy says that teaching is exercising of authority, and that is the point that I'm trying to make. And when the, when the pastors say, well, no, it can't be not all teaching can be with authority because it doesn't touch on the pastoral office. The point that we're trying to make is it doesn't matter because that section of First Timothy is not about the pastoral office. It is not about what pastors do in the pulpit versus what the laity are permitted to do, whether male or female. 
The question is much more fundamental, and this is where Lutherans have gotten, we just become retarded. We don't understand these ontological questions of what is the root of the authority to do this, and thank God for telling us right in the text that the order of creation is the revealed nature of the difference. Eve was deceived. Now, that's, that's profound if you're talking about girls publishing theological books. God said it wasn't Adam who was tricked by Satan. It was the girl who was tricked by Satan. And that is the reason why girls can't teach. And for pastors to stand up and say, well, that just means in church, or that just means, you know, maybe not theological books or certain kinds of theological books, but maybe not the really hardcore ones, it's nonsense. If a girl is teaching and she is the one who was deceived by Satan, she is usurping the created order by opening her mouth. And this is where the egalitarian thing really just causes everyone to have a meltdown. The bottom line is very simple. If you are a girl, your will should be expressed through your father or through your husband. You should not have a public will expressed in any other way. That is headship. As Corey talked about, you know, the foot doesn't decide where to go. The foot doesn't talk. The mouth is on the head. The head speaks. And that's the reason that it's Mrs. Robert Preuss and not whatever her name was. I don't even have to know her name. I know she was Mrs. Robert Preuss. She was his wife. There's not a permissible circumstance under which a woman has her views expressed in public. And that was the root of the 19th Amendment. And it's the root of all of this. It's the root of the feminist attack on the created order for the last hundred and however many years is to say, you know what? Girls, you know, it's girl power. Girls are going to express themselves. They're going to make their mark. They're going to do those things which they are capable of doing. And that's another part of the argument is that, as, as Corey mentioned, you know, you said that it's not about whether or not they are good at it. And honestly, I think one of the reasons that a lot of these pastors are so willing to embrace all these girls doing stuff in their churches is that inside they know that they should never have been ordained. I think they know that they're not competent. And when they see the teaching abilities of some of the girls in their, in their, under their care, under their superior rule, they're ashamed because they can't do as well as the girls under them. And rather than trying to be better pastors or maybe stepping down and saying, you know what, I'm not fit for this office, instead they choose to usurp God's order by elevating girls to do the job that God has tasked them with doing. There's that, and there is also, they know that if they promote women, or at least they believe that if they promote women, in today's society it's true, that that will insulate them from criticism from others, because look at how progressive I'm being, and I'm including women, and I'm doing all these things that the culture loves, which that should set off alarm bells for any Christian, but they do that because then they're insulated from being criticized by other men. And if they were instead selecting competent men in their congregations, which unless they've absolutely failed as a pastor, they should have those in their churches, because they don't necessarily want to select the men because that's competition, which is not how a man would actually see it. Yes, competition is healthy and it's a good thing, but ultimately I'm not trying to destroy you if I'm teaching and I'm better at teaching a particular subject. It's simply a recognition that God has given me certain abilities, God has given you certain abilities, and they should be used to serve the church. And we, tr well, we don't, but modern Christians try to weasel around 
everything in Scripture. Lutherans do this with some things. Thankfully, we do not do it when it comes to justification, when it comes to sanctification, when it comes to these core issues that we got absolutely right 500 years ago, and we have held correctly for 500 years, which thanks be to God that we have those. But that doesn't excuse us when it comes to all these other issues that if we don't get them wrong, we certainly don't get them right. And the CTCR and those who have crafted some of the documents made in the 60s definitely got them wrong. And so we have the injunctions in 1 Timothy that relate to creation, that relate to things, how they are supposed to be in a Christian society, what Christians should attempt to create wherever they live. Well, we also have 1 Corinthians, which addresses the church explicitly. So we have society generally and the church explicitly. Well, what does 1 Corinthians say to women? As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. This could not possibly be more clear. It says that women are to be silent in the churches. It does not say that women are supposed to speak only if the pastor permits it or the pastor wants to have women lectors or anything like that. No, women are to be silent in the church. Women should not be heard in the church. And yes, that applies to the Bible study as well as to the service. As much as we'd like to think that, oh, well, it's just, no, don't weasel out of it by saying it's just the service. Where does it say just during the liturgy? Where does it say just during the service of the sacrament? Where does it say just during the service of the word? It doesn't say that anywhere because it says women are to be silent in the churches, period. No exceptions. And now, of course, you'll have those who try to wiggle out of it by saying, well, a woman's not speaking if she writes a book. Yes, she is. If I write something and someone else reads it, I'm speaking in his head. That's what that is. So if I write a book and it is then used by a pastor to teach his sheep, I am teaching his sheep. I am exercising authority. And so if a woman writes a book and the pastor uses that in church, that woman is exercising authority over those sheep and that pastor is facilitating it. So he is now participating in her sin and making it worse because of his office and what he should be doing. And he, as a rightful head, is going to be held to a higher standard. And pastors should tremble at the fact that, yes, you have opted for the stricter judgment. Maybe worry about that a little more. And that's a vital point, is that this podcast is us speaking with authority. We may be completely wrong. That doesn't mean we're not speaking authority authoritatively. It means that we're sinning if we're in error, because we're saying things that are lies. The example you gave of these pastors who say that they're excited to take these books published by girls and teach them in their congregations takes the other kind of authority and directly applies it. Because the crucial difference between you and I and a pastor is that we don't have a caller. When we speak, we do not bind consciences. And we see this every day. Whenever we've said anything online for years, we get dogpiled by people who never give us the best construction. We're told that we're not brothers in Christ. We're told that we're evil. We're told 
every malign thing possible has been said about us directly for citing scripture. And frankly, that's okay. The point is that when I speak, when you speak, we don't bind anyone's conscience unless the Holy Spirit binds their conscience. Because although speaking has authority inherent to itself, it is the, it, that ends the moment that the person is done listening or reading, because they go and process it, and they decide, am I going to believe this or not? That's not the case when a pastor speaks, and that's not the case when a pastor sanctifies teaching that's usurping the order of creation by a girl doing it. When he does it, a pastor binds consciences. Anything a pastor says, whether he's wearing his collar or not, says this is what God says. It's implicit. And a lot of these guys are afraid of that because they know that the strict for judgment awaits. And so they just think, well, either, you know, it's on Twitter, so it's not really a big deal. Or I'm not going to say what I think because I don't want to get in trouble or cause a, cause a kerfuffle. When these pastors sanctify usurpation of God's order, they are sinning. They are sinning against their flock. They are sinning against God. They are acting in an idolatrous way, in an evil way. Um, I think as we're getting to the end of our time in this first episode, I want to point out that part of the reason that we chose the name Stone Choir is from the verse where Jesus describes how the very stones would cry out when the Pharisees implored him to silence his followers. The Pharisees were tired of Jesus' followers praising him and giving adoration to his word. And Jesus, understanding the vocation of a follower better than any man could, under, also understands creation itself. And Jesus told the Pharisees, if I tell my people to stop confessing me and to stop praising me, it will be creation itself. It will be a stone whose vocation is to just sit there silently and be a stone and do nothing. They would literally cry out, and that wasn't figurative, that wasn't a metaphor, any more than Balaam's donkey speaking to warn him was true. These stones would literally cry out if every man went silent. So the reason that we chose that name for this podcast is that you and I are laymen. We have no vocation to speak apart from that vocation of Christian of Christian man, uh, of Christian man who has been given the aptitude and the discernment to read these things and to understand them and to explain them in a way that is accessible to any many people. And for all the pastors who accuse us of being cowards and being trolls and ogres and all sorts of other nonsense, the bottom line is this, what we are saying is what scripture is saying. And I will tell Hans and all the other guys, that the reason that that conversation started a few weeks ago was downstream from conversations that you and I have had. And our churches are full, filled with men who agree with you and agree with me, Corey. And we're not usurping. In our own congregations, we don't pick fights. We don't cause trouble. What we do is we step forward. So that in all these cases where we see girls usurping, whether they deliberately usurp or not, when they're acting as ushers and lectors and all these other things, the men who agree with us, rather than arguing with those girls, they're stepping forward in the church. We are doing those things that men have abdicated. And that's fundamentally the root of all of this. From start to finish, the only reason that a girl would ever write a book or try to be an elder or a lector or any of the other things that goes on 
is if a man has failed to do so. And by our publishing house publishing all these books by girls, what the LCMS is saying is that there are no pastors to say these things. There are no pastors to teach. We need girls to teach our theology now. We need girls to teach anything because there are no men to do it. And that's simply not the case. This God has blessed Lutheranism and has blessed Christianity outside Lutheranism with faithful Christians who hear his word and obey it, even in the face of the most vicious and murderous slander. And we are speaking out. We started this podcast and we will continue to speak as long as pastors are unfaithful. As long as we are the only voices who are saying these things that need to be said, we will be here saying them. It was hilarious that earlier this evening, Hans Feeney posted that thread where he basically said, yeah, for 50 years, all these problems have been going on in the church and no one said anything until these anonymous cowards started this fight. But they have a good point. Well, that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly why a lot of guys are anonymous. And that's why Corey and I are never going to pursue the pastoral office, despite the fact that virtually every pastor both of us have ever talked to has, in our first conversation with them, I've had pastors interrupt me after 15 minutes saying, you should go to seminary. That's the kind of men that we are in person. And all these guys that think that we're stupid or we're evil or we're up to no good, not only are they being uncharitable and slanderous, but they're also just wrong. Um, we will re remain laymen because laymen do not have a vocation to a congregation. I, I think one of the, the greatest strengths and greatest weaknesses of the Missouri Synod is our congregational polity means that every pastor can just be head down with his own sheep and pretending these other things are not happening. But that's not the way the world works, especially, especially when you have the internet and you have publishing houses and you have catalogs where error in any one place will rapidly propagate everywhere. And for every pastor that wants to pretend this stuff is not happening, his congregation is full of people who are lapping it up 167 hours a week. And that one hour a week that he's preaching faithfully isn't going to cut it when Satan is catechizing them for the other 167 hours. So as much as we can do anything, we are going to speak faithfully. And may God help us to reach those who are willing to listen. I want to add a little bit of emphasis to the point that we both made about what is actually happening when a pastor or another teacher in the church uses materials written by a woman. And of course, that is the pastor permitting that woman to exercise authority through him. But it's worse than that. And the reason it's worse than that is because what is a pastor actually doing? What is a pastor supposed to be doing? A pastor speaks in the stead of Christ. When a pastor is up there speaking, he is speaking with the voice of God. At the very least, he is supposed to be speaking with the voice of God. So if a pastor is up there teaching, and he is using materials produced by a girl, he is saying that a girl can speak with the voice of God. And that is simply not true. Men speak for God. God chose men to speak for him. God made men to speak for him. He in, did not make girls to do that. Yes, in public, of course. A, a woman can teach her children at home. Absolutely. She should do that. That is one of her duties. We recognize that. Yep. Because that is her sphere. And 
a mother can rightly exercise a sort of headship over her children, just as children can exercise a sort of headship over their pets. There are different levels to the hierarchy, but when it comes to speaking in public, a woman cannot speak with the voice of God in public in that way. That is something that is restricted to men. And so the pastor is misrepresenting God, ultimately, is what he is doing. And that is a grievous sin, and that should absolutely terrify these men when they stand up and defend the indefensible. And I just have to say it is funny that they always go after the anonymity thing as if I've ever been anonymous. Yeah, you're, they you're just, so subtle they're, with they're your just, name and face everywhere. I am very subtle about it. Yes, they're just absolute hypocrites, and and they know it. They're just insufferable hypocrites. To preemptively address one of the criticisms of the last point you made, the the argument has been made against the position that that has been advanced against against girls publishing books. Well, what about the grocery store? the The distinction in teaching is public. It is the one to many relationship. Every Christian male or female, has a duty at all times. Young or old, your five-year-old, whether it's a boy or a girl, has a duty to share his or her faith in Christ with anyone who will listen. But those are one-to-one relationships. They're interpersonal. If you're in the grocery store and you're a mother and you have an opportunity to share the gospel, you are commanded to do that by God. We are not speaking against that, because although that is a public place for legal purposes, that is not public preaching or teaching. When a woman shares her faith in Christ, she's sharing what she knows, hopefully faithfully, but that conversation should always end with, let me introduce you to my pastor. And that's the part that's missing yes. from this. And, and, that's, and that is where we, too, I, like you and I, between us, have probably put. I, I know I personally put at least a hundred souls in Lutheran churches. And I'm not taking credit. Like I did that. Yeah. The fact that I have represented myself as a Lutheran online has caused well over a hundred men, women, and children to join Lutheran congregations. And not once have I ever said join the Church of Woe. What I have said is let me help you find a faithful pastor under whose care you and supervision you will be, and then go. And be the less, be the best layman that you can be in that congregation, where you will, you know, hopefully someday serve as an elder, where you can volunteer, where you can set a good example, where you can learn to catechize your own family faithfully. So we are not usurpers of the church. We are attempting to enable the church in a way that is being battled by the very men who are sworn to God not to do so. And I I pray that we can once again be on the same side because we ultimately want everyone to hear the gospel. And as as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the men that that Corey and I have reached through the work that we have done have been men, some of them were baptized as a result. There are several who've been baptized and catechized just in the last year because of me posting the very things that pastors say I'm going to go to hell for. And now these men are attending every Sunday. They are excited about watching the Fort Wayne daily stream of services. They're reading their Bibles voraciously. They are working with their pastors. If that is the fruit of an evil tree, then I don't know what a good tree is supposed to look like. 
it's just ultimately we actually intend all of this for the good. And Absolutely. There are those who those there are those who believe that we don't. And if they're going to believe that, then they can go ahead and believe that. But nothing we have said, nothing we have posted, nothing we've written would give any indication that we desire anything other than what we have stated. We want to get men back into the churches. And men are not going to come back into the churches as long as they are just hearing a watered-down 20-year-old version of what the culture tells them every day echoed from the pulpits. Because if we have pastors like that, why on earth would I go to church? It makes so much more sense to wake up late and go have brunch instead of going to a church where I'm just going to hear the same nonsense the culture tells me every single day. So instead, we want pastors to be faithful and actually teach what Christianity is. Not this watered-down, culturally sensitive version of Christianity that is not. As this podcast goes along, I hope that, um, I hope that we'll reach the right people. And as we do this, we're going to name names. We're going to go after people by name for what they've said in public. And it is never done with malicious intent. It is not with the intent of destruction. It is done with the attempt of the intent of calling to repentance. Because as long as these errors persist, men will be chased away. And one of the things that we have seen repeatedly is that there are a lot of pastors that think it's hilarious for the type of men who have come into their very own churches because of the things that we have said over the past few years. Pastors want those guys to go to hell. They don't want them in their pul- in their in their pews. And I, you could not find a more different spirit dichotomy than what we see with the response to men who hold opinions that are contrary to the world. And in some cases, as they are learning about Christianity, are contrary to Christianity. They're, they're ignorant. They've, they've been raised outside the church by an evil world. We are trying to connect them with pastors who will be faithful to the teachings of God. And it's astonishing and depressing to me how difficult that is. But the reason that we are speaking, again, it's not, it's not to condemn just for the sake of condemnation. It is because I want there to still be Lutheran churches in 20 years for us and for all of these people who are trying to come to God to find and to find faithful preaching. And on the, project, on the trajectory that we're on today, that's not going to be the case. There will not be a Christian church in 20 years. And I know the pastors think that's not the case because of you know, the gates of hell not prevailing and all that stuff. Yes, that's true. Christianity will always be preserved, but God also promised there would be a remnant, and God promised there would be a great apostasy, and God promised that many of those who cry out, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? God will say to them, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. We don't want that to happen to the pastors who hate us. We want them to repent, and we want the people who want to come to our churches to find churches that are faithful to God so that we can all meet in heaven and not have any of these problems and we can live the perfect lives that God created us to live in the first place. I think we can sum up in large part, in addition to the, the stones crying out, we can sum up the purpose of this podcast with Ezekiel 33. 
So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn away from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And that's what it comes down to. We don't have a choice. If Christ's disciples, his followers, had been silent, the stones would have cried out. The stones would not have had a choice. The stones would have to have cried out. It would have been their duty to cry out. Well, it's our duty to address these things, because as was stated previously, God has given us the ability to see them and the ability to address them. And so we do not have a choice. This isn't a, a project because it's necessarily enjoyable or fun. This is something that has to be done because there is a duty to do it and because the consequences of not doing it are unthinkable. Amen.